0: after the Arab Spring began, the Middle East burns more viciously than ever. Why? Afghanistan, the Taliban still hitting targets in Helmand and Pakistan. We talked to Britain's top woman in Kabul, the ambassador. And Syria, should the RAF drop aid to starving people?
1: If the only alternative is to keep those people alive is to drop by air, then it can be done, and it should be done, and it is legal to do it.
0: The Taliban is still hitting weak spots in Helmand province. The Afghan army cannot keep control of the whole country, especially if Pakistan keeps supplying the terrorists with weapons. Does this mean that the whole decade of war and Britain's part in it were wasted years? Not so, says Britain's ambassador to Kabul, Karen Pierce. I've been talking to her shortly before she leaves her post to head back to London. I began by asking her, is Helmand a lost cause?
2: Well, the situation shows a lot of hard-pressed fighting. The government forces are fighting very courageously, uh, but there are a lot of Taliban forces in that part of Helmand at the moment, uh, and Sangin is under particular pressure. Sangin has long been uh, a place where the Taliban... Uh, have some support. And this is now coming to be shown in the type of fighting. Um, So as I say, it remains under pressure, Afghan forces fighting hard, um, but we um, await developments.
0: Yes, you say the Afghan forces are fighting hard. How close is Afghanistan as a whole as being almost impossible to govern?
2: Oh, I don't think there's any question of Afghanistan as a whole being impossible to govern, whether or not towns in Helmand uh, end up falling to the Taliban or or not. Um, Afghanistan is a state that has managed throughout many decades uh, to withstand enormous swings in fortune. Um, It is not a unitary state in the sense that the central government's writ runs in every little district center it's used to be having a very strong degree of decentralization Uh, Afghans themselves are very loyal to the concept of Afghanistan, even as they celebrate their own province or their own tribe. Uh, So I don't think there's a question of Afghanistan being impossible to govern at all, uh, or even that difficult to govern. It just has a very particular pattern of governance. And where local government is weak and local security is weak, uh, those are the places that the Taliban have managed to come into
0: And in those kind of places, how important is a Western coalition military presence, especially close air support for the Afghan army, for the foreseeable future?
2: Um, Well, I think it depends a little bit on where exactly the Taliban are. Some of the places that the Taliban are occupying, and you hear figures in the press uh, of up to 30% of Afghanistan is occupied by the Taliban. Uh, That's not actually true. Uh, I would say more that 30% of Afghanistan is contested by the Taliban. They only actually hold 2% of district areas. Um, In some of those areas, the Taliban are just present. They're not holding ground that is strategic or economically important or even population centres. So obviously Western military support uh, is not needed uh, in those areas. Um, Where Western military air support and other support has been used is to help the Afghan forces in particular cases, uh, notably where the Taliban are actually inside uh, communities or town centres. Uh, because then it's very difficult uh, for the um, Afghan infantry uh, to clear the area. So in those cases, uh, NATO has authorised the use of close air support.
0: And and just finally, Ambassador, as you approach the end of your tenure in Kabul, uh, and you reflect on your time, what do you think you've been able to contribute? And and how positive are you feeling about the future of the country?
2: Um, I am very positive about the long-term future of Afghanistan. I think the people have enormous resilience Uh, which they've shown throughout their history, uh, no matter what fate has sprung on them. Uh, They now have a government that is determined uh, to be on better terms with its neighbours, notably Pakistan, uh, and also with the West. And I think it's important that we remember that Afghanistan is a friend to the West in an area, a region that's often unhelpful and often dangerous. Uh, And I think that's an important point. Um, In terms of what we've done here in the embassy, what I've done, um, we've helped the reconciliation process. We've helped Afghanistan foster good relations with Pakistan, uh, which I think is important. Um, We've helped them put together jobs and growth plan uh, for the country to stimulate the economy. Uh, In particular, we've brought together the public and private sector uh, to help do that and help get investment going. Uh, And the UK also helped Afghanistan uh, submit and be successful in its application to the World Trade Organization, uh, which again should help it in a regional context uh, as well as a domestic one. And then we have helped enormously uh, with security, with training. Uh, with disrupting attacks on Kabul, uh, helping the government learn uh, how to be a professional in a modern government.
0: That was the British ambassador to Kabul, Karen Pierce. Uh, well, I'm joined now, as usual, by Christopher Lee, our defence analyst. Christopher, what do you think about what she said?
1: Um, three very important things. One is the British government has been trying to bring Afghanistan and Pakistan closer together. The Pakistan military, for example, supply a lot of uh, the weaponry to Taliban, and without Pakistan on your side, you can't get a solution to Afghanistan. That's the first thing. So, they, they, realizing that, the second thing is realizing that it's not all military. We tend to think, so you know, how many boots on the ground, you know, who's shooting who at whom, for example. And she's saying, no, no, no. It's also about educating Afghanistan to get in touch with people like the World Trade Organization to see that it's a big commercial, that's where the future is, Mm -hmm. you know, like anybody knows it's the economy stupid at the end of it. The most important thing is a reminder of this Um, we see a country when it's being governed in a very European way, a sophisticated way that you govern the whole lot. She is saying, listen, government is not about being the writ of government in Kabul, running the whole country. There are parts of the country which they accept they do not run but that is the way that Afghanistan can be governed.
3: Sit,
1: rep. Oh,
0: Still to come, Obama says it for the last time, but what was it he didn't say?
4: BFBS
0: sit, rep. A second aid convoy has left the Syrian capital, Damascus, heading for the besieged rebel town of Madaya. Fifty trucks are carrying desperately needed food and medical supplies. Until a convoy arrived on Monday, the town hadn't had food and medicine delivered since October. Local doctors say people have starved to death because of the siege. The former Liberal Democrat leader, Lord Ashdown, wants the government to push for RAF airdrops of aid to people cut off in Syria's civil war.
1: The UN has a right enshrined in humanitarian law reinforced by UN Security Council resolution to deliver aid through to these starving besieged cities. Uh, that may not be blocked. Uh, It's far better to deliver that by land, more efficient, than doing it by air. But in the last analysis, in extremis, if the only alternative is to keep those people alive, is to drop by air, then it can be done, and it should be done, and it is legal to do it. We kept starving and besieged Srebrenica alive with airdrops. We did the same for the Yazidis, and if it should happen again in Syria, that they block access, then we should have this as an option up our sleeve.
0: Well, I'm joined now by Hamish de Breton-Gordon, a former army officer and chemical weapons expert who advises NGOs working in Syria. Uh, Good to speak to you today. RAF airdrops. What do you think of that idea, then?
3: Well, I I think Lord Ashdown is absolutely right. This is something that must be considered. But uh, getting it in by land is by far the most uh, preferred way to do it. Um, But as he says in extremis, and it's been done before, then I, I would hope... That, um, that, that all elements of the UN are looking at this, and I'm sure you know, the RAF, who are you know, probably the world's expert in doing this sort of thing, uh, have got contingency plans. But uh, one of the difficulties, you know, actually dropping into cities like Madaya and, and elsewhere, um, for these airdrops to get in there and hit the right place is incredibly difficult. You generally want a secure area to drop it into. Uh, and in some cases that that is is going to be hugely challenging but certainly you know as, as a last option it must be looked at because you know these medieval practices of siege warfare that we've seen across Syria you know in in 2016 is, is unbelievable starving people out of these cities so we must do everything we can uh, to support them and prevent that um, escalating getting worse than it already is
0: just how many places are currently under siege in Syria
3: well, as far as I know from, from, from my sources and, and, and what, what I've seen, I believe there are about another 18 cities across Syria. Um, it's not only the regime who, who are doing this, uh, rebels as well, and Islamic State um, have been besieging the strategic military airfield and town of Da'iza. Um, to the southeast of, uh, in the southeast of the country, for some time, so um, you know the, everybody is doing it because I suppose it, it is it is proving effective. But you know this eighteen cities and you know tens, if not hundreds of thousands, of people at you know at, at peril of uh, starvation.
0: Uh, Christopher Lee, just how does a UN corridor work exactly?
1: Well, the first thing you've got to do is to guarantee the corridor. You start that with negotiations and with all sorts of people involved. Um, And then you've got to have... The UN, for example, can't put an armed security uh, operation in in place itself. You have to realize that the people who say, yes, okay, it will be open for, say, one hour or one day or whatever it is, one week, that is all done, has to be done by negotiation. And when you consider the disparate organizations involved from, from the Assad government down to rebel groups and you might get in general a rebel group uh, permission to sort of say right we won't attack that uh, at any convoy but you only get to get one well, step out of line and the whole, the whole thing goes to a ball of chalk. And it, but it's still, as uh, Hamish says, it's still the preferred route. You can get more in uh, but it also means important that you have done the negotiations and that's better for the whole organisation anyway. Whereas Paddy Ashdown's thing very difficult. You've got to have air superiority or supremacy for a start. Uh, we've also got to make sure that whatever you drop is not picked up by rebels who will then take it necessarily at gunpoint and they'll probably sell some of it if they think fit. But they'll be using it as a weapon.
0: Hey, Mr Breton-Gordon, do you think there really is a will on the ground in Syria to make sure that innocent civilians are getting the supplies they need?
3: Well, that, that, that's a very good question and, and, and multi-complicated for, for the reasons that Christopher's just said. I think, first of all, this, this food aid into my diet, that, that is a good thing. You know, that In this desperate situation of, of things just seeming to go from bad to worse, this is a positive thing. And um, will, people,
0: will people be each taking a little cut along the way as that aid is allowed through?
3: Well, you know, that, that, is, that is really difficult to judge. The, uh, my my experience is in northwest Syria, where, where Osem, the uh, international medical charity I support and advise, uh, w- we have about 32 hospitals. Getting uh, medical supplies and aid to them is it, hugely complex, uh, and as Christopher said, it's all the various cr- groups and the other big challenge is, is bandits. Mm-hmm. Christ- there are a huge amount of bandits. Uh, Hamish, you're just breaking up a little
0: there. Uh, you're just breaking up a little. If I just put it to, to Christopher, um, it, how, how would that work on the ground practically?
1: Um sometimes it doesn't work. That's the first thing to realise how difficult it is. But you've got to talk to perhaps 10, 12, 20 uh, 20 different groups. And the fact that you can talk to them, or you are talking to them, aids a bigger bigger picture. But you see, look where you're travelling. You're travelling through a war-torn, and that's not a cliche, but a uh, war-torn environment where you can have Half a dozen guys with AK-47s, for example, can hold up a a convoy and take not necessarily what they want, but take quite a lot. And it's a dispersed operation. It's not just saying, ah, we identified one town. At the moment, the United Nations thinks there's somewhere in between 420,000 and 450,000 people who desperately need these food supplies. Some of them are in towns that most people in europe for example are never heard of they're sort of hamlets sometimes mm. but it's getting to those when you become far more vulnerable you can if you go say let's say uh, to mediah for example which is not very far away from damascus It's not very far away from the from the from the lebanese border it is far easier to sort that one out than rather than something in the northwest
0: hey, hey mr Breton gordon you mentioned that you are working in the north of the country how easy is it for you there
3: um, it, it's hugely challenging um, and takes a great deal of, uh, of working out, as we've seen from the Nadia piece, which has taken you know weeks at least. And it's it's making sure all the factions are, are involved. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, before I broke up, um, you know the bandits who, who get hold of this stuff and sell it for huge prices. I mean, you may be aware that. You know, rice. Um, you know, a ton of rice collects thousands and thousands of dollars. So the bandit thing is is a really huge concern. And also, we, we can only we only use Syrians in Syria. You know, getting getting aid workers in and, and anybody who stands out just makes it even more challenging. But um, you know, we have over the last three years just about managed to to supply our hospitals. But I think one of the other things and why I take a bit of hope from Madaya. Myself and a a number of others involved in Syria have been calling for some time for the UN to investigate much more in depth the the idea of safe havens um, so that we can, in in areas uh, where it's permissible, um, make sure that we can get this aid in and then distribute it from there. Because without that, you know, the starving people... Um, you know one of the things we're trying to do is win the hearts and minds so that the Vienna talks which you know in theory we could have a ceasefire in four, four months time which in a way I expect is people are trying to manoeuvre at the moment to get themselves in the best position for that ceasefire should it come along mm. uh, but, but with, with that in place there, there is hope and I think with what we've seen at Madae, if if the Vienna talks go well at the end of this month and we look to the ceasefire in elections. There is just a little bit of hope in this desperate situation that um, we, we can perhaps look to the future with slightly more uh, anticipation of, uh, of some sort of success.
0: All right. Hey Mr Bretton Gordon, thank you very much for your time today. On Tuesday, President Obama gave his last speech to the joint houses of the American Congress, the Senate and the House of Representatives. This is the State of the Union message when the American president is called once a year to tell the country and its lawmakers where he thinks America is internationally and at home. Well, this time next year, America will be getting ready to swear in its new lodger in the White House. Uh, Christopher Lee, uh, what did he say, or more importantly, what didn't he say?
1: If you if you split his, his arguments really into two parts, um, one is what he did say in practical terms. He talked about uh, mostly domestic, um, you know, things like uh, the economy, always the economy, is stupid, education, gun law, etc., health care, um, and he's he basically he's saying that it's seven years, he's got another year to go, more or less, uh, seven years, the country is not in a great state, but it's holding together. It's still the most proudest nation in mm. the world and it's still the most powerful nation in the world. Now, you, what he didn't say is that he is the first president since Woodrow Wilson, so we're talking about just after the First World War, uh, to bring America home from the trouble of the world. In other words, he's withdrawn um, and he's recognised that America, perhaps no great power at all, can necessarily fix the world mm. at its bidding.
0: And what did he have to say about Islamic State?
1: Not very much at all. Mm. You see, this is the whole point. It was a concentration.
0: Except this is not World War Three.
1: This is not World War Three, And he has a different view of what World War Three can do. World War Three is when you fight something on a world, a world stage. If it threatens you, and I give you an example of why this is a difficult one to sell to the American people. In a recent survey in America, and it was just last week, something like 70% of Americans had never heard of ISIS.
0: <laughs> well, five years ago today, the president of Tunisia, Ben Ali, resigned. And so was born the Arab Spring. It began with candlelit vigils and the glow from iPhones sharing the news across social media. But within months, the lights had gone out and the Middle East was on fire in almost every country other than Israel and Oman. Well, joining me now, the veteran broadcaster Robin Lustig, who covered the whole thing as presenter of the BBC's The World Tonight. Uh, Good to speak to you today, Robin. Um, Five years ago, the Middle East was full of hope for peaceful change from dictatorships. Um, Did you believe that at the time, and what happened?
4: I'm not sure I believed it. I hoped I thought there was a chance that something good was going to come out of all this. The hopes were dashed, obviously, as were the hopes of all those tens and hundreds of thousands of mainly young Arabs in Tunisia, as you say, in Egypt, in Libya and elsewhere, Bahrain, Yemen, right across the Arab world, hoping for something better. They didn't get it, with the possible exception, actually, of Tunisia, where there is still a slim chance that something good and stable will result out of that revolution. Were
0: we all all a bit naive then?
4: I think we, we, we forgot the lessons of history. We thought that the revolutions that Central and Eastern Europe had seen in 1989, at the end of the Cold War, when all of those communist regimes collapsed that that was the way revolutions would be. Somehow there could be a peaceful handover of power from autocrats hmm. to democrats. It's not the way revolutions tend to be. Think of the French Revolution. Think of the Russian Revolution. They resulted in years and years of war, of upset, of turmoil. That's what we're seeing in the Arab world.
0: Christopher, and most of the world now concentrates on what's happening in Syria, but there could be an even bigger crisis over the horizon. That's Saudi Arabia.
1: Saudi Arabia at the moment <clears throat> is threatened. It's the royal family who ru- who run uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, their very being is threatened. It's not a could be, might be. It is actually. So we're talking about the a potential
0: moment. collapse of Saudi Arabia. We are Arabia. talking
1: about an attempt to dislodge the way Saudi Arabia is, is is run, and that it's not. It's going to take far more than say the royal family. Uh, promising for new legislation that makes life easier. Just yesterday for example, uh, one of the uh, uh, critics of the way that uh, Saudi Arabia is is run, uh, she was arrested. Uh, Who knows what will happen to her? There have been uh, executions of people who are protesters etc. Now, here we get to the point. If Saudi Arabia starts a slide, um, America cannot let saudi arabia for whatever it thinks of it fall america will have to reinforce even greater reinforcements than it's putting at the moment and it's putting in reinforcement it will have to put people into saudi arabia this could Mm. turn out to be the beginnings this year of seeing one of the biggest firefights we've ever seen since vietnam
0: robin lustig do you think that things in the region in the middle east are going to get worse before they get better
4: I fear there is a real risk that they will get worse. It's very hard to see them getting better. What I would say, I mean, I agree with Christopher that there is a real, real worry about the future of the... Saud royal family in Saudi Arabia. What I would hope is that there are enough policy makers in Washington and in Western Europe to see that there are some reformers in Saudi Arabia and if they can be encouraged, if they can somehow be enabled to give the Shia in the east of Saudi Arabia a little bit more autonomy, a little bit more freedom, a sense that the country is theirs as well as belonging to the royal family, there is a chance that disaster can be averted. Every
1: every morning Uh, in Washington, in the White House, Uh, President Obama is handed uh, an an iPad from each of his senior advisers and members of state, etc. On the foreign policy, defense, uh, threat uh, lecture uh, iPad is a list, one to seven, of things that he should think about or ask questions about. Saudi Arabia is the one that has been grayed out and it's been greyed out now for two weeks. Greyed out? Greyed out, which means somebody is thinking about this, but we don't have a definite answer of how we should react. And that happened a couple of weeks ago. It was greyed out. Now, this tells you not, oh, they're forgetting about it. This tells you that on the morning iPad, it is assumed that people are working on this in a big way, and a bigger way than anything else, including ISIS, including Russia... Uh, and they're quite serious about so, it.
0: So, Robin Lustig, what do you think will be on that iPad when it's no longer greyed out?
1: <laughs> well, if I knew,
4: I'd be telling President Obama. Uh, but I, I would say this. I mean, I think that the, the real problem for Saudi now is that it's a very frightened kingdom. The oil price has collapsed, which means the money is no longer coming in as it was. Its great rival in the region, Iran, is about to have sanctions lifted after the agreement on its nuclear programme. Mm. It and the releasing
0: of those, uh, those 10 US servicemen as well. Well, Well, It was very
4: interesting. It was an example of how relations between the US and Iran have improved, while relations between the US and Saudi have gone in the opposite direction. I think the rulers of Saudi are very, very scared. And when powerful, wealthy rulers get frightened, the world needs to get worried.
0: Robin Lustig, thank you for your time today. Thank you. More than 1 in 10 British veterans who've seen active service will suffer from some kind of physical or mental health problems in the coming years. That's according to a new report by researchers at the King's College London, commissioned by Help for Heroes. It estimates that more than 66,000 servicemen and women who served during the last 25 years will need medical support. Kyle Lark has been to meet some of those recovering from the scars
3: of war. I couldn't grasp onto anything anymore. And then it's when I had to sit back on the sofa and think about myself and and that's when it was just like a tsunami just came over me and I lay on the sofa for three months and the family had to see that continuously
5: Jason Burns had served 26 years in the Royal Marines and reached the rank of sergeant major during a mortar alarm in Lashkar Gah in Afghanistan he slipped and injured himself in a freak accident he's now paralyzed and in a wheelchair for the rest of his life
2: and I
3: still some days struggle now with it. Not as much, because I also have severe PTSD.
5: Jason isn't alone. A report launched this week entitled Counting the Cost, assessed data on armed forces personnel who've served in every conflict from the start of the first Gulf War to the end of the Afghanistan campaign. The report predicts that more than 66,000, that's almost one in 11 of those who saw active service in the last 25 years, may need help for mental and physical injuries in the future. His the report's author professor neil greenberg
0: what this study hopefully does is to start the debate about what the longer term costs are from health in terms of physical and mental health for the individuals but also for society so if you send 10,000 troops on deployment absolutely understandable but we really need to know what their needs might be in the future so that they can get the right services because just as the military covenant says that they should not be disadvantaged due to them serving their country
5: Duncan Green broke his back in three places in an IED blast in Helmand. He says the support from comrades during recovery saved his life.
3: It's nice saving because if you didn't have those around you, you'd feel so alone. And there was days where I woke up and I thought, sort of, what's the point? I, you know, I, I've got no life left. And then I'd look around and see double, triple amputees who were just getting on with their life. I and mean, just take a minute and slap yourself and go, right, they're getting on with it. No reason for you not
4: to.
5: But once medically discharged, the loneliness and mental health problems can surface. Former head of the army, General Lord Dannett, says people shouldn't try and hack it alone.
4: In the military, we hack it ourselves by drinking too much. Then your behaviour disintegrates. If you're married, you wind up beating your wife or your shoplift or you, and so on. And you spiral down to too many of our veterans in prison. We really want to stop that and we can stop it by early intervention. Through destigmatizing this, people knowing that they need help.
5: It can take decades before people seek that support for their mental health issues, but a new service from Help for Heroes which complements those available from other military charities is designed to stop veterans and their
0: families suffering in silence. That was uh, Kaya Lark reporting. Of course, the Armed Forces Covenant is designed to help people from, or prevent them from suffering, give them the support they need, and that's in the news again this week, isn't it, Christopher?
1: Yeah, it's it's in the it's in the news in as much that um, uh, tonight at Downing Street, as a, as a reception, uh, all the companies that sort of help out armed forces. Um, people who were in the armed forces, Uh, and there's a reception for for them all. But it's a reminder that this so-called covenant, does it actually work, and in what form does it work? And in practical terms, sometimes it does. And we've been talking to the um, Defence Select Committee just to come back to it mm. and find out what's happening.
0: Um, also around this week, you at the Royal United Services Institute hanging around the corridors there of that defence think tank. I wasn't
1: hanging around.
0: <laughs> Getting informed about important things. Tell us a bit more. Went
1: for the coffee. Listen, uh, i tell you what's happening at the moment. There's a big examination of what America and the United Kingdom, what threats they see in 2016. They add up to about 35 Threats, 35. 35 threats where we might get involved. The ones involved. we know about, potentially. Yeah, for ex- but in places that we don't talk about, for example, the the Democratic Democratic Republic of uh, of, of Congo, mm-hmm. or in Burundi, mm-hmm. places like that. And uh, this is on Tuesday, and we were talking about Indonesia and what have we seen? We've yes, seen an attacks in Jakarta uh, today, but what is particularly interesting is how to get that information, that analysis, up to the guys that have to take the political decisions. So you can go to a Secretary of State or a a Defence Secretary or a a Foreign Secretary or a Prime Minister and you start talking about a threat, whether it's cyber, whether it's economic or whether it's military, and the eyes glaze over. Mm. They can't take it on board until they have to.
0: Interesting to say that um, the Arab Spring five years ago started and that that thought about the hope and the fact that it was going to be positive.
1: Yeah. Uh, My feeling at the time about it was that the young people, the educated 25, 30-year-olds who wanted something else, what they wanted was their own identity as Kuwaitis, as Egyptians, as Tunisians. And that is what they still haven't got, and that's what they still want. And that's the important bit.
0: And that's it today. My thanks to Christopher and all of our guests. Don't forget, you can download this programme as a podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at BFBS Sitrep. Until this time next week, thanks for listening. Bye-bye from me, Kate Chabot.
4: The best of British news, sport and entertainment
2: for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2.